Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Tennis with an Accent. This is Sakib hosting the show once again. The uh, show is produced by our friends at Red Circle. Uh, for many, tennis season is over because, uh, you know, US Open is in the books, but the diehard tennis fans who tune into these podcasts know there's a lot of ranking points and a lot of key tournaments in the Asian swing and the fall swing in Europe. And to keep you guys uh, uh, engaged in the podcast, we have a guest who's been living the life on the tour. Uh, I want to welcome Craig Boynton, who's taking time out after a busy U.S. hardcore season to come on the podcast and uh, enlighten us with what's going on with his coaching, his charges, and you know, I'm sure it should be a fun conversation. Welcome, Craig. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. So, a basic question. I mean, I was trying to do some research, uh, and uh, you do have a LinkedIn account, and it shows up, and I don't know many people in the tennis industry, especially in coaching. So that was kind of nice to see, you know, what you've done in LinkedIn. <laughs> so uh, do, you, do you get approached on LinkedIn? I mean, is this a norm for a tennis coach? <laughs> you know, it's really funny. Um, I, I, as a whole, kind of shy away from social media. Um, and uh, I, I joined LinkedIn. It's kind of a bit of a funny story. Um, for a period of time in my coaching career, I got off the road. And I, uh, all my kids were born in Cincinnati. I worked at a, cl- a club at Harper's Point in Cincinnati. And then I moved over and was director of racket sports at Five Seasons. And one of my former students uh, invited me to join via LinkedIn. And I'm like, well, I, I don't want to say no. <laughs> you know, I don't want to I don't want to be that that guy. And, <laughs> and so I, uh, I accepted it. And lo and behold, I found out how social media works. And, you know, a few weeks later, I've got requests from this person or requests from that person. Um, And, you know, with the social media, with LinkedIn, it is more business related. Um, So that's something that I I wouldn't say I'm on it a lot, but I like to keep it up to date. Uh, I think I just updated uh, my profile yesterday. Um, So and I think it's 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 good to have a, you know, the tennis community. Uh, I'm not necessarily looking for new employment, but um, it's always it's always good to be kind of in that that society uh, and being able to 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 reach out and see what the people in the tennis community, not only coaches or whatnot, and, and what they're up to and what, uh, what their their latest status is. No, absolutely, and this is just you know it was a fun tidbit I wanted to share with the audience and. Uh... And it's good to know that coaches are out there. So uh, let, let me just reset the conversation. You know, you're a very known coach. Anyone who's followed the tennis has followed your body of work with John Isner. And then you were also working with Jim Courier uh, back in the day. And then you've been with uh, Stevie Johnson for quite some time. You've shared duties with Johnson and Query. Now you have Hurkacz and Johnson. So let's talk about Craig Boynton, the coach. Uh, uh, I, be- I believe you were a pro tennis player. So wh- when does a player know? I mean... Uh, that coaching comes natural to you. I mean, how was that process for you when you thought you could, uh, you know, you could talk, you know, maybe be a mentor, you can talk tennis to these guys at this level. How did that come through for you? I can tell you kind of the exact, the exact time I knew I was destined for coaching. Um, it was when I, I played in college uh, my senior year at Clemson and my roommate, Brian Page, um, and I, he played one, and I was playing two, and I had a really, really good senior senior year. I mean, I, I played really well, and I was happy to play two. I had a really good record. Um, Brian was one of those players who could win at one, 
He could win at six. He could lose at one. He could lose at six. And so coach just had him play at one uh, because he's a real dangerous player. And so I can always, I can remember wanting Brian to win so badly that before matches uh, we created a routine for him and, and we played right next to, to each other. And my senior year, I was just kind of on cruise control. So I was really engaged in his matches and, and really spending a lot of energy, making sure he got over the finish line. And so it kind of dawned on me uh, my senior year that, you know, I'm really a lot better at helping other people through their issues than I am me getting through my issues type thing. And it's, it's kind of really interesting uh, as a, as a coach, I feel when, when you become pretty good at a coach and you start coaching, you can identify in other players, what you were weak as, as a player. And so I'm really good at helping players through the issues that I was really poor at as a player. Um, and, and so those are kind of the two things that stuck with me right out of the gate. Um, and, and it, it, I had so much fun helping Brian. Um, I had more fun really kind of watching him, watching him progress through matches and, and the information and the things that we talked about helping him with the wins that was more gratifying and satisfying for me than me winning. So mm. that, that kind of, um, Looking back on it, that was the start of my coaching career. Uh, how did you land the Jim Courier gig? That must have been, I mean, still, former world number one, no matter, you know, when he was playing, it has to be one of the big jobs. So how did that come about? Well, a lot of these coaching uh, opportunities come from relationships. And I was a few years older than Jim, but there were some tournaments in juniors where, uh, you know, Jim played up and, and, um, I could, I could watch him play and, and we were familiar with each other. And, uh, I would train at Saddlebrook when I was playing and at Saddlebrook, there was Jim Courier, there was Pete Sampras, there was Jennifer Capriotti, you know, David Wheaton, Jeff Tarango. These, these players would funnel through and I just seemed to find myself on the court hitting with them. Uh, towards the tail end of my playing career, I was hitting every day with Jennifer Capriotti and I didn't care. She was 13. She was a good hit. And so I would be happy to hit with her when I was getting ready to go uh, uh, play the, the satellites back then. And then as I transitioned out of playing and into coaching, I could still hit the ball. I actually hit the ball better now that the pressure wasn't on me. And so Jennifer wanted me on the court and Jim would ask for me when I came, when he came through and Pete would ask to hit with me when he came through and the, and the coach and the, the pros, uh, when they came in, I just was kind of the guy that they would hit with. So I established a relationship with Jim and with Pete and Jennifer, and it's just kind of one thing led to another and the timing of things that Jim Jim's coach, uh, his second coach, Brad Stein, went to coach Medvedev. And so it was just a natural progression that I would slot into that position as kind of the assistant or the traveling coach. And Jose Higueras was the main coach. 
And it was a great time for me because I got to learn from Jose. And uh, I also got to learn firsthand what it was like for someone, Jim's personality, to get to the top of the tennis world. Now, what year is this when your association with Courier? Was he already world number one or uh, he's, he's been he world got number to, one? No, he was, he was on the way. He was not one. He was three at the time. So he was still really, really relevant. Uh, but Pete at that time had kind of established himself as the best player in the world. Absolutely. Now, I remember watching those years when uh, there was a time when Korea won his French Open. That result came as a surprise. But then the next couple of years, he was, you know, pretty hard to beat. And uh, so what did you, I mean, of course, you know, that's uh, one of the, you know, your premier or, you know, first, not premier, like prime coaching jobs, but then you've been coaching for a while. Uh, how has coaching manual changed from the days of coaching a career to, you know, now working on the tour, coaching against the Nadals and the Federers and the Djokovic? How has the coaching playbook changed? Well, where it's really changed uh, is... Now you've got to be in the people business when you're a coach. You have to understand people. And I think what has worked for me is I'm, I'm able to really understand who the person is. And uh, I'm fortunate that my past relationships with John and Sam and Stevie have lasted you know, a long bit of time. And I think it's because I'm in the people business first, understanding them. And I also know what it takes to get that personality from point A to point B. And it's no longer the concept back where I am the coach. You do it this way because I know it works. No, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't work. And if it works, it works for a very, very limited amount of time. Uh, because the athletes today, you, you have to explain to them why it works for them. They have to feel that that's the right way for them. They have to trust that, you're, that you have them in mind. Uh, so it's really player first, really player centric first now um, has, as the coaching has evolved in the last 20 years. I think uh, Tim Mayotte said something on Twitter today, like, you know, with this day and age of analytics and data, that's all important, but you still have to establish a human relation with your charge. And I think it works both ways. Like you said, trust is key. So so uh, let me just, you know, take this uh, conversation even further in coaching. So what are the attributes you're looking uh, when you are, you know, approached by a player or if you are interested in a, in a player? Is it talent? Is it, you know, work ethic? Uh, um, you know, tennis is very international. Is it uh, a choice to coach more Americans or that just happened more natural? What are some of the boxes that Craig Boynton looks if, you know, a new coaching uh, job, you know, comes on the horizon or you want to approach someone? Well, hopefully there's, there's no new coaching job no. on my horizon. Okay, so, so let's... <laughs> but, no, but I understand the question. Yeah. Um, well, it's really interesting. Um, I... I look at everyone as an individual. So if, if I were approached by, by a player, uh, chances are I have a pretty good idea uh, of who they are on the outside. I've spent time uh, observing them. Um, I, you know, one of, the, one of the benefits of being on the tour for so long is uh, I, get to, I get to watch players over and over again and get a feel. If I coach against them, 
I'll have an idea of what their breaking point is. I'll have an idea of what their strengths are. I will have probably socialized with that person for a bit of time. So I can kind of hit the ground running a little bit as to how I would uh, make my delivery and what it is, uh, in my mind, what it is that I know what worked for me when I coached against them. But it's still, it's still bringing all that information to an initial conversation as to, hey, why do you think I'm good for you? What is it that you see in me that can help your game? Because at the end of the day, yeah, it's my career and my livelihood, but it's about them getting better. It's about their career. It's about what their goals are. It's about what they want to accomplish. And so there's a, there's a lot that goes into, uh, into that conversations because it's used generally just not one conversation. And then from that, it's you get a feel for, is this something that I want to take on? Is this something, A, I think I can help them with? Um, how far do I think I can go? Meaning how far do they want to go? So there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of conversations that spawn other conversations based upon, uh, those questions and answers. So it's not just a kind of a real cookie cutter. I'm looking for this, um, things, people are all different. Everyone is different and everyone has a different kind of quote unquote thumbprint, if you will. And what the fun part for me as a coach is trying to navigate that riddle. Um, and I'm constantly asking myself questions, you know, what did I miss? What worked? What didn't work? What, what do I think will work? Assessing a situation and saying, okay, what did I miss here? And going back. And it's all pertinent on, on the individual. Everyone is different. And what worked well with John uh, is not going to really work well with Hubie at times. And, and, and me understanding that, um, and th that's the fun part for me. So the fun part for me, what I sit down is what am I going to learn from this individual? And do I really think that I can help them? Hmm, interesting. Uh, another aspect, you know, with definitely your resume stands out a little more, but I think it's pretty common in tennis. Sometimes uh, we fans don't realize that, you know, the coaching double duty, you coach two players. Uh, Gunther Bresnik had worked with Ernest Gulbis and Dominic Team. You worked with Stevie and Sam and now Stevie and Hubie. So, uh, I mean, of course, it's, it, it works. But, uh, you know, uh, do you have to let Stevie know? Do you have to have his buy-in when you signed up with Hubie? I mean, how does... Uh, that work because uh, coaching's responsibilities but shared from your point uh, how does that process evolve well with coaching too it's um it's really a unique situation it really depends upon the two individuals and so rewind the tape you know three or four years ago uh when i was coaching stevie Sam, Sam was in the market and Sam and Stevie are such really good friends. They train at the same place in Carson and USTA center. They play the same schedule. So it really worked out. It, it really, really worked out. Um, they both understand each other. Uh, they both were exceedingly respectful of my time uh, with each other. And I worked hard to keep either. They're very good friends. I worked hard to keep them separate so they each felt like they had their own individual coach. But they were really, really good about it. 
Um, and then Sam and I split in February and I had a trial with Hubie and, uh, you know, Hubie's the nicest guy in tour. I mean, everybody loves Hubie. So it wasn't a scenario where Stevie had, you know, any kind of negative thoughts towards Hubie at all. Not at all. It just became difficult because Hubie's ranking was going one way and Stevie's ranking was going another way. And now they're not at the same tournaments and now they're not on the same schedule. Um, and so it, 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 that in itself, Matt, that makes it difficult, really difficult when they're not on the same schedule. Um, but to, to, you know, not, not a lot of coaches have two players. Um, it's a lot of work and it really depends upon the players, how they, how they're able to share and the schedules have got to stay the same. So there's a lot of moving parts to it. Okay, let me ask you a very immature question, which, uh, you know, I can't resist. Uh, what happens if the Johnson-Hurkacz <laughs> match happen? How do you coach, uh, you know, if it's a major or Indian Wells match, yeah. how do you coach that match? That actually happened. It happened on the grass this year at Eastbourne. And okay. <laughs> um, so what I told both of them, I told them both the same thing. It's like, listen, I'm not going to coach you to help you win this match. You're going to have to figure that out. I'm going to remind you the things we've been working on and the things that make you, you and make you special. Uh, I will be at each one's warm up. I will answer any questions that you have as it pertains to their tennis, not the match. I said, I'm going to sit about as far away uh, as I can. Uh, and I am not going to clap. And I'm telling you, that was the hardest match I have ever uh, been a part of. Because I couldn't be vested in either one of them, like outwardly. Um, and so I ended up watching, you know, Eastbourne's a, a mixed event with men and women. I actually ended up watching a lot of the match of the women's match that were around, uh, around their match. Because I, 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 if you looked at me, I looked so disinterested in that match because I, I just didn't want to give off the, yeah. the wrong vibe of positivity to either one of them. I wanted it to be done on the court. I wanted them to do their own due diligence and how to beat them. And I, the guys handled it well. I mean, it was a tough situation. It was tough. Um, and uh, unfortunately, you know, there was a loser. And it just wasn't, it, it just wasn't, uh, it wasn't a lot of fun, to be honest. Yeah. It wasn't a lot of fun. But, you know, that's just, that's just one of the things that they understand when you want to share a coach, there are benefits that come with that. And there are also some things that, you know, that aren't the, the best, but they know that going in. And I was, I'm very clear with them going in. And the ironic thing about it was when I, I was with Stevie and Sam together for about three and a half years and man, they were on a collision course to play each other. I'm going to say like eight times and it never happened. It never happened. And then here we are, Stevie and Hubie. And I started with Hubie and Indian Wells, which is March. And lo and behold, in June, they play each other. So two <laughs> months out, they play each other. So it's just, it's just kind of, you know, the way it is. I, I remember a story where Benjamin, who was coaching uh, Gilles um, from Luxembourg, and he started with Herbert from, from France. And their first tournament out, uh, Gilles Mueller, first tournament they go together, they play each other first round. I mean, first tournament. 
out of the out of the gate. And so uh, at least at least our experience wasn't that bad. But yeah, um, yeah it was uh, it was something that that I'm gonna tell you that wasn't a fun match to be a part of. Okay, so you have an off season coming up, which uh, you know most players use a two three week training block. That's the time you know coaches and players work and add. So I'm sure you have to figure out a schedule with these two. So let's look back at the Johnson Query off seasons you've had. How do these guys work together? Because we often hear Federer and Djokovic and Nadal, they are practicing with some, you know, juniors or younger players. So in, in your scenario, if you had Query and Johnson last year, so that's kind of ideal. Or do you still bring in practice partners because you want to work with both of them in separate drills? Or you think it kind of works if they both can be hitting with each other and be part of uh, the process? So my philosophy is when I have two guys, they never hit together unless it's a warm up or it's, you know, we're getting off the plane and we're just shaking the trip out of our legs. So generally Sam and Stevie would have a schedule and their schedule might change based upon they've got to see someone at this time, you know, life. Um, And so USTA out in Carson was really good about making sure one of those guys was covered. And uh, most of the time, the coach that was covering them has already worked with them in some fashion. So they both know that I can't be at two places at once. So there was one off season where Stevie got all his physical work done in the morning. um, And then I worked with Sam in the morning and then Sam did his physical work in the afternoon, and that left the afternoon for me to work with Stevie. Uh, there was one one year where you know Sam was getting over knee surgery, and so he w- had a very limited amount of court time. So we're able to kind of ham and egg it and and juggle it such where I could be there for both of them. Uh, last off season, they had the identical they had the identical schedule, and so it was more like. You know, Monday, Wednesday, I was with Sam at this time. Tuesday, Thursday, I was with Stevie at this time. And we worked Friday out. And then weekends were, you know, they play sets. And again, the USTA staff out in Carson was really great about helping me. And so uh, you just have to do the best you can and be as organized as you can and let the coaches know that that are taking that I'm not going to be with what the agenda is for the day and talk to, talk to Sam or Stevie and let them know. And they're in on the process uh, of what we're working on. So it's not like they're going in cold uh, and and just doing the best you can, but being organized. Where's this stemming from? I mean, I'm trying to understand. It's pretty fascinating from outside. I thought they would be practicing together. So you're trying to make maybe a professional approach where this way you give both men their due I guess, uh, due process, or you just want to keep it separate? So where is this stemming from? Just curiosity. Well, I want, I want, when I'm on the court, I want to be 100% focused on one person. Mm-hmm. And so I can't necessarily get on the court with them. I mean, I can. And they're both working on different things. Or if it's early in the off season where they're basically just working on getting basic drills down, then yeah, you can do that. You can, but they don't necessarily really need me there for that. I mean, so that's just more court time when you're getting through your physical training. But when I step on the court, I want to be 100, but 100% focused on the agenda 
for whoever I'm working with for that day. So every single moment, uh, every single swing, every single rep, I'm, I'm 100% engaged in what we're doing and what we're trying to accomplish. And it makes it really difficult. I feel bad if I'm on the court uh, with both Stevie and Sam and I'm engaged in Sam, I'm not paying attention to Stevie. So then, okay, I've got to go on the other side and then I've got to pay attention to Stevie and then I'm not paying attention to Sam. So for me, I, I just don't feel like I work the best that way. And I don't mm-hmm. think that's the best work for them. Uh, so that's, that's just my philosophy on it. Uh, it creates more work day for me, but I don't, I don't mind that. I, uh, that to me, I don't, I don't care. Because uh, I just I want the job to be done right. That's the most important thing. No, that, that's good to hear. And uh, pardon me if the question didn't make sense. I was just curious. Oh no, how, not at all. How, how this works? So uh, you said Stevie's ranking, of course, it's known. You know, his form hasn't been, you know, what maybe you know his high standards have been in the past. So when the off season is coming, uh, again, not to be specific to Johnson or even Johnson in the past or Isner in the past. How do you assess a year? Is it in the off season? If you've hit your goals, how do you reset the button? What you know? What are there difficult conversations? I mean, I'm sure the guys are consummate professionals. So, what, what do you bring to the table uh, in the off season? Is there a review to start prepping for the next season? Uh, what, what are some of the benchmarks? Well, a- absolutely. I mean, off season for sure is to prep for the next season, but you also have to look at back and see what were the toe stubbing issues you had for for the year prior, uh, you know, what broke down, what didn't work, what do we need to address? And, you know, you're going to try to be addressing that throughout the year anyway, but sometimes it's good just to get away a little bit, a few weeks in November, take a big, take a big deep breath and then get to work as to what are the items that, uh, that need to be addressed in, in order of importance. And so you sit down and you assess you're at all the matches. You can assess and go through the year uh, and break it down however you need to break it down. But there's going to be generally three areas, three or four areas that broke down and three or four areas that didn't break down. And so then you you get together a plan. You get together, okay, what is it that we need to fix? What, what are the holes that need to be fixed? Uh, and also, what are your assets that need to get sharper? Uh, these players that are ranked top 50, they got it. They're freakish in some way. They're the best in the world at something. And so I'm, I'm all, I'm also a proponent of let's work the majority of the time on your strengths, because if you're, if you're a freak in some way with your strengths and those get better, then you're going to get better faster. Yes. Obviously you've got to, tighten up whatever the holes are, the weaknesses are. But, you know, John's strength at his game, if he, he's going he's gonna to beat a lot of players before he's up against someone that can somewhat neutralize his strength and open up his weaknesses. So then it's like, okay, you're, now you start flying in that type of air. Okay, now we got to set a little bit of time aside for what these top players are doing to expose you. Uh, and so that's how I've always looked at it. And that's how I, I, that was my, always been my approach to improvement and also rankings in, 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 in terms of where you are uh, on the tour, 
how many matches you are in winning positions. You know, a lot of times you could have a bad year and it's the mind that breaks down the body. So the, the tennis is, I've seen it a lot where the tennis is in really great spot, but the mind can play tricks on the body. And all of a sudden, you know, what happens when you see somebody choking that's generally not because something's breaking down physically, for the most part. Sometimes it is, but it's mm. I'm either afraid to win, I'm afraid to lose, um, I'm getting apprehensive at the moment. So that could be a scenario where like, well, you just need to be in that situation more and work your way through it and you're fine. So there's a, there's a, a, there are a lot more breakdowns than just things that are happening technically. Yeah, and those need, to be, yeah, those need to be uh, assessed and addressed. Absolutely. So let's uh, focus the conversation uh, a little bit to Hubie Hurkacz. Uh, he played Djokovic back-to-back majors this year. So how did those matches, of course, uh, you know, you you guys prepped for the big match. But what did you learn about your charge after the Wimbledon match? Because he really hung in there for the first two sets. Did the kid surprise you or talk about the, the stretch from Roland Garros and to those first two sets at Wimbledon? So it was pretty interesting. Um, we had a pretty basic game plan to, to play Novak. Um, and, you know, a lot of this game plan doesn't really matter if Novak is, is really locked in. And I felt like at the French, right out of the gate, Novak played, I mean, phenomenal tennis. Phenomenal tennis. And, you know, first time for Hubie playing uh, Chatrier, uh, number one in the world, it was. I thought he did. I thought he did well. Um, he didn't. The scoreline wouldn't say that, but also it showed kind of where, to me, where Novak was. And I always know where Hubie can be. Um, and so basically, it was a great experience, and I'm happy that he had that. Yeah, it's a bummer that he got played him first round. Um, and so our goal was, Hey, listen, let's get this, let's, let's get this match again, but let's get it, you know, third, fourth round of 16 at a slam. And we know what to do now. We have the experience of the loss so we can adjust. Okay. And he played so well that when he sees you, he's going to think, Oh yeah, I played well, I beat him, but he's not going to know what we're going to do differently. And this is what we're going to do differently. And so when he played Novak at, um, at, at, uh, at Wimby, third round, we, we had the luxury of adjusting. And we had the luxury of knowing what worked and what didn't work. And so, you know, the first two sets were terrific. I mean, Hubie actually kind of played a really loose game at five all in the first. Uh, could have really easily held. Uh, but then battled back and showed how much he fight he he fights. Took the second set off Novak, and now again he's in another position he hadn't been in. You know, Novak went to the bathroom, took some time, slowed down, reset, and Hubie got you know learned a lesson on on what happens when you take a set off one of those top guys, um, and and you know, lost one and four. But again, it was progress. He had massive progress from the French to Wimbledon. And so, yes, it was forced. It was a loss, but it was a lot of progress. And, you know, these young kids, and Hubie's young, he's 22. He's one of the, you know, next-gen generation. 
it's not like, you know, a, a Rafa who was 18 and a phenom. The, you know, Hubie needs, he needs some time. Um, he's going to be really, really good. But it's all about improvement, uh, incremental goals, incre- incremental improvement. And the, the improvement that from the French from Wimbledon that I saw, I couldn't have been happier. Now, personally, I think that he could have beaten Novak that day. Uh, that's just me. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of Hubie. <laughs> and I'm, if he was a stock, I'd be buying just because I know what Hubie can do. And Novak was not playing anywhere near the level of the French that he was at Wimbledon. And partly was that because of what, how Hubie was playing and the adjustments that he made. And so I felt like if Hubie could have stayed in that same mindset in the set, he was in the second, he could have at least gotten to five sets and really put a scare into Novak, really could have put a scare into him. But you know what? That's going to happen. I've got no doubt that it's going to happen. You know, I wanted it to happen that day, but I've got to be patient as a coach. But I know what's going to happen because I know Hubie's just going to continue to grow and get better. And he's going to wake up one day and go, you know what? I really, I really do deserve to be here. And I really can, I really can uh, play with these guys and I can beat these guys. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, and to challenge these guys, a big three, uh, there's a very common commentary out there, which Andre, uh, sorry, not Daniel Medvedev, not Andre Medvedev. Daniel Medvedev showed you have to come to the net, you know, willingly or unwillingly to finish the points because you can't leave these balls hanging. So is there a plan? Uh, for Hubi Hurkacz to add a transition game or add more to the net or volleys? Uh, I mean, do you believe uh, or you just believe the all-aggressive baseline game will cut out because he's so talented? Well, one one begets the other. So if he's on the baseline taking balls early um, and really pushing and dictating play, and, and this was the case with Sam Querrey. Um, if you're playing the right way, you'll just find yourself at net because of the momentum of taking balls early, the open space that you're taking, and you'll find yourself at net. And so, yes, you've got to get in the right mindset. Yes, you've got to be playing the right way up the baseline. There's, there's really not uh, that, that I can see. There's a couple that are just normal, like, I'm going to come in no matter what. Um, pre- like, premier uh, net players, like you would say, like uh, like an Edberg or a Cash or even a Becker. Now you see baseline players, like you said, aggressive baseline players coming in on their terms off an approach shot that's hit because they have managed the point and now they've gotten the ball in the short in the in the forecourt. They're taking it early and their momentum follows them in. So now they're volleying, but they're more volleying on their terms as opposed to just someone that's going to come in and it doesn't matter if they're coming in behind the point, their movement and their execution and their technique at net is so good that they'll be able to cover. So it's the, them coming forward is more a byproduct of how they're playing aggressively off the baseline. So to answer your question, yes, Hubie is going to, we're going to work on improvement with him, his movement at net, but the way I see it right now, Hubie, and if anybody's not waking up and saying, I got to get better in all areas to close the gap on these guys, then you're getting worse. So, yes, that is an area, uh, but Hubie has to understand how and why he's coming to the net and how and why he needs to move a certain way. And, you know, one of the things to help with that is doubles. I'm going to look to have Hubie play 
a lot more doubles because he's seeing that the tool of doubles and how to move without the ball and the angles to move and the you know the great doubles players they move they move towards the net in an angle not sideways and that skill set will help him dramatically when moving in singles towards the net when he hits a ball and say Rafa gets over there dips one cross court instead of moving laterally and now the the court's getting bigger he can move at an angle and get that ball uh, out of the air and hit a drop ball and you saw some of that play he did against Novak at uh, at Wimbledon when he was on top of the net moving that way so that those those uh, lessons and those experiences are starting to pay off for him and he's becoming a better player because of it uh, sure let's dig a little deeper on the Wimbledon match and also maybe you can use your days with Courier and the decade earlier uh, to maybe make some comparison. A lot of commentary is there right now. Uh, these three guys are good, but uh, the new generation or even the generation of Dimitrov and Shikori, they really haven't made any inroads. And uh, a lot of the think tank discussions on podcasts, on forums, is uh, there's an art of playing best of five sets. The younger kids just don't have that because they're only playing best of five uh, in majors and in Davis Cup till last year. So, and when you play a Djokovic or the other two, you pretty much guaranteed on the Chartre or court one at Wimbledon, if not center, and Ash on, you know, US, the biggest scenario. So, question one, you know, when is Hubie Hercats, when Djokovic took that break or, you know, uh, just the Wimbledon match, it becomes a two out of three sets. So, is he ready to win, or any youngster, maybe even a Sitsipas or maybe even a Medvedev, are these guys ready? Uh, you know, we've seen from such a close, uh, you know, space there to challenge the Federer, Djokovic's and Nadal's in the best of five. And if not, why is there such a gap in the younger players starting from Kyrgios, Zverev to all the way to Hubie when best of, playing best of five is becoming such a, not a lost art, but the gap is just magnified, at least from our point of view. Right. I mean, I think the best of five, what happens there, it gives more of advantage to the better player. And that's the way it is. I mean, the longer something goes on, if I'm better, the better, the more chance I have to to right or wrong or get out in front and be a good front runner. I mean, the 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 top three are just so good in every aspect. They've been so good for so long. But if you look at it, you look at Cincinnati. Okay, so Rafa didn't play Cincinnati, and it was Novak and and Roger. Well, both of those guys, Novak and Roger, in Cincinnati, lost to a next-gen player. Yes, it's two out of three, but it was the first time that they both lost to a next-gen player in a major. It's not a major. I mean, Masters 1000 is a big tournament. Yes, it's two out of three. Yes, it's two out of three. Um, but now, now f- fast forward uh, to the U.S. Open. So, you know, uh, Rafa is in a fifth set and down break points at the beginning of the fifth set to really get himself in trouble with Medvedev, a younger player. So you could I, what it sends to me is, all right, well, the younger generation is starting to figure out how to beat these guys in big tournaments. Um, Titsipas did beat Roger at the Australian uh, earlier in the year. So there is a, a next gen there, there. It's starting to happen. It's starting to turn. And so I, the gap is getting, in my opinion, from what I see, you know, there's still a gap, but the gap is getting smaller. And these younger players, 
it's just a matter of time where they start beating this this older gen, older generation. I mean, it's going to happen at some point. These guys aren't going to play for 50 more years. Seems like they might. But I, I already start seeing the cracks in it. I already start seeing it coming. And you have this situation where and it happened when it was Andre and Jim and Pete and all the and Andre got out ahead and started winning. And I remember Courier telling me when Andre won Wimbledon, that was his first, he told me, watch me next year. Andre showed us how to do it. And that's when he made finals. He beat Edberg in the semis. And so you have one of these young kids like Medvedev, they're breaking out. It sends a message to the rest of the young group. Hey, wait a minute. I know that guy. He's no better than me. If he can do it, I can do it. And I'm going to do it. I'm going to catch him. And here comes the herd. And here it comes. And for me, I see, I see they're coming. I see they're coming. And I, I'm, I would be really surprised if we had this conversation this time next year that someone other than the top three won all four slams. I'd be really surprised. No, you, you are right, absolutely. And I was talking to a friend like Daniel Medvedev's run. I'm sure is, is inspi- inspiring to all his peers, from Hubie, or rivals to Hubie, to Shapovalov, to you know uh, Nick Kyrgios, whoever's watching. Uh, so uh, let let me ask you this: I saw a video cast on Eurosport where John McEnroe, Lander, and Becker were, and Ivan Lendl were talking, and Lendl made some very interesting points. He said, "Look, uh, I just was working with Sasha Zverev. Everybody." realizes that, you know, Djokovic and Nadal are playing really good. Federer's still playing at 38. So the peak in tennis has shifted to age 33. Back in the day when Lendl was playing, it was 26, 27, and folks would retire around 29, 30. So he said, we all have to be learned to be a little patient with these guys. All these guys are good, but their window to peak is, has extended because, you know, two realities, you know, can't be true at the same time. If... Uh, uh, Djokovic and Nadal are still very relevant, are the best two players in the game at 33 or 32, then we must give more time to the Sasha Zverevs and, you know, all the other youngsters. So is that, uh, is that a sane approach or, you know, when you are in the coaching business, you just want results next year? I mean, what, what is your expectation? <laughs> well, you also have to, one other piece, and, and Yvonne is exactly right, but the thing was, if you rewind the tape to Roger 16 years ago and uh, Rafa 14 years ago or 12 years ago, those guys at 22, it's a different world. They didn't have to deal with all this massive uh, social media and all, all, all the, the, the pressures that that, that that has. And it's a different mindset. These kids think differently. Um, and it's just, a, it's just a, the world is different. And so expectations are so much more heightened with these kids. And there's so much more buzz and and there's so much more outlets and media outlets and so much more stimulation. So I think, you know, that's, that's one thing also that if you don't put that in a box and if you don't deal with that and you don't get that under control, that can really start messing with your head and it can start messing with your development. And so I think that's one thing that, that into Yvonne's point, we've got to be patient with these kids Yes, we all want the next great thing, but you can't you can't mess with nature, and you have to understand. I mean, you have to understand what these kids are going through, and it's crazy to, to me to think. You know, Sasha's twenty two. I think he's twenty two. I mean, for me, the guy is like thirty two. He's been around forever. You know, he's been on the tour forever, 
and I got to keep I got to keep reminding myself, you know, he's 22. He's still really young. He's still really young. And so I, I agree wholeheartedly with what Yvonne said is that let's not let's not rush this. You know, let's make sure that these guys are doing what they need to be doing. You know, you don't you don't run outside in front of, and stand in front of a tree and scream and scream grow. You know, it's just it's not going to happen. You just got to water the plant and feed the plant and do the best and nurture it and make sure they're improving and learning from the lessons. And then it will happen and, and, and it will happen. But where the society is so quick to get the next great thing and but also we really have to stop and admire and respect these three and what they've done and what, 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 what they put tennis on the map. Uh, but you know, I want my guy to, I want my guy to send one of them home early. So, uh, and I, it'll happen. Do you, do you I, look forward happen. to, do you look forward to coaching against these three? I mean, I'm sure it's the biggest challenge in, in our sport right now, but, uh, is it an exciting moment as a, for a coach to just lock horns with the Federer's and the Djokovic or Nadal? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I, I want to win every match. I, mean, with that, I want my player to win every match and be prepared for every match. And, um, you know, I've been fortunate enough to have some success against the three. Um, I obviously have more losses than wins. But as a coach, I have a few wins against those guys. Um, and it's, it's really special um, not only just to be able to watch them play as, as a fan, you know, I, 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 get, I can't get caught up as a fan, you know, when I'm there, I'm a coach and uh, the, that whoever's on the other side of the net is the obstacle for whoever I'm coaching. And I want my guy to play tomorrow. So here's the plan and how to, how to beat this guy. Now, you know, Hubie can, and whoever can execute the plan, but that still doesn't mean, you know, that they're going to get the W because these guys are so great. Uh, but it, but it, there's a little extra buzz. And when Hubie played uh, Roger in the quarters of Indian Wells, you know, when Roger just walks on the court, there's a different buzz to it. Is it just a different feel? You know, Sam, when I was coaching Sam, he was able to play an amazing match in the finals of Cabo a couple years ago and beat Rafa. Um, and when uh, coaching uh, Sam, Sam beat Novak at Wimbledon, and uh, yeah, John was coaching John. And yeah, but if I wasn't working with him then, but okay. you know, the funny thing about it was, you know, Sam lost the first set six zero. It was on Halloween, and I I watched that match to get him ready for the match at Wimbledon. Um, and then John beat no. When I was coaching John, John beat Novak in the semis of uh, Indian, Indian Wells. Wells. Yeah, yeah, and lost to Roger in the final. So. Uh, you know, I'm I'm familiar. I'm familiar with these guys. Uh, I mean, <laughs> the long lot lot more list of the losses I could go through. But no, I mean, with with that, I can go to Hubie and say, "Hey, Hubie, um, this is what Sam did when Sam beat. This was a game plan. This is what happened. Let's watch the tape. You know, this is what this is what we decided to do. Um, and and the same goes with with um, with the others." So it's um it's a, it's special to play them. It's really special if you happen to beat them. And like I said, I suspect that that will change more for these young kids growing up because they just don't have these young generation because they just simply have no fear. All right. So we've already covered quite a lot, and I have still a couple more questions. Let's wrap this up after sure. that. Sure. 
uh, again, you know, going back to coaching career, you know, and all those guys, and there's a clear shift in how tennis is played. Fans and tennis pundits, everybody said, uh, is it a notion? The surfaces have slowed down. Tennis is played differently. But it also has a clear shift in the fate of American men. Uh, when I came to the States in the early 90s, it was all about Sampras Agassi. Courier was still very relevant. Chang was, you know, world number two in 96. Todd Martin made, you know, major finals in Australia and US Open. Uh, Andy Roddick is the last man to win a major. So do you see a correlation how tennis uh, maybe surfaces have homogenized and in the decline of uh, results uh, and the American men uh, at the very top of the sport? We still have world-class players like Isner and uh, the next generation is, you know, looking very promising. Uh, what's your view? Do you see a correlation on how the sport has changed? I, I wouldn't say it has to do with surface-related. Um, the difference... The biggest difference, the one difference you could say, you know, what's the difference between when Jim played and, and what uh, the game now is speed. Um, the game is played so much faster and so, in so much more of a physical manner. Um, and so what has to happen really is you've got to be an athlete to play tennis now. Um, not, not that the guys weren't athletes before, but it is so demanding physically. Um, and really we've got to get athletes playing tennis, uh, the best, the best athletic talent. You know, there's a lot of sports for them to choose. And if these athletic, um, these really athletic uh, kids can, can choose tennis and stay with tennis, then I, 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 I have no doubt that you're going to see, you know, a, a, a shift However, you know, these things do run in cycles and these cycles uh, are, are generational. So it could take some time. Um, but if you can't run, uh, you, be, you better be a super freak in some other aspect of your tennis game uh, because it's just, a it's just a completely different game. It's just an absolutely completely different game. There's no space that's given. If there's any space, it's taken. Um, and it's open court. You, you generally don't see a lot of long rallies. You know, the tennis these days and the men's side, it's within the first four swings. If you don't impose yourself within the first four swings, your opponent will be, impose upon you. Um, and, and, you know, you, you, you take it from there and work down. So if we can, like I said, if we can get, we can get some premier athletes uh, to start playing tennis at a young age and cultivate and get them going. I have no doubt that um, the coaching and, and the information is there. Uh, we'll, we'll start seeing some different results. Now, I've heard this viewpoint. I think was it McIndoe? Someone said a long time ago, I think in, it kind of echoes to what you said, that in the U.S. Uh, there are other major sports and we buy for you know, the young kids to take up tennis and there's big competition from football, baseball, basketball and hockey. So on that note, let's uh, come to the concluding act of the podcast. You've been on the tour. Are there any stories, any light stories you want to share? Maybe a story to delight the audience, uh, something that we don't really hear. Again, you don't have to spill any secrets out or something that's funny or maybe memorable during your association with any of the players, uh, if you can share with the audience. Sure. I, I have, a, I have, I can tell you, my proudest moment that I had with John Isner, and it, and it was, um, 
you know, John and I, when I first started working with John, um, I really wanted him to compete better. Um, and he, uh, he would get a little down in the mouth if he got a serve broken. Um, and so I, I was just on him on a daily basis about letting it go. Just compete. Uh, don't worry about what just happened. Look forward. Uh, don't, don't show any emotion. Just keep competing. Be resilient. Be resilient. I mean, it was, it was daily and, and we would, you know, we would get in some, some, some lovingly heated discussions about it. Um, and so he's playing a match, uh, Burditch in, uh, DC and Burditch is, I don't know, uh, five in the world, six in the world, something like this. And John wins the first set and he is serving for the match at five, six, four, five, four, 40, 15 gets back to deuce another match point gets broken is up six more match, five more match points in the tiebreaker loses the second, loses the second set starts the third set. And I've just got a pit in my stomach. Like, Oh my goodness, this, I, I don't know what I'm going to say to him afterwards. This is going to be bad. And at one all in the third, he's down 1540. And you know, John's just playing. He's just playing. He's just playing. He holds gets a late break and wins and wins the third set. And I, I was like inside, I was so proud of him. And I, I, I went in the locker room and he's just changing. And I stood next to him. I'm just waiting for him to talk to me. And he sees that I'm there and he says, Hey CB, I didn't bat an eye, did I? <laughs> and I, 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 that was my most, I mean, I'm telling the story right now. I'm getting chills. I'm getting <laughs> chills because for coaching, that's what gets me up in the morning is to make a difference. And what, what really gives just is, is, a, is a gas for me is that there's something that I'm helping bring to the table that makes the difference between winning and losing and makes the difference between getting better or not getting better. And that is my, I mean, of all the things John did, all the things that he did, that is my number one John Isner story, and he probably doesn't even know it. I mean, you know, sitting through the match with John, 70-68, I mean, you know, that, that's a, I mean, we could do a whole hour on that match alone, and, uh, that podcast. That was crazy. But uh, that, that was the one, that, the one moment with John that I will, I will never forget. That's number one for me. No, no th thanks for sharing that, and definitely, uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, you have a still busy season ahead. Maybe we'll have you back on the podcast and we'll talk about the uh, the Wimbledon fifth set against Nicolas Mahou. And that note, uh, Craig, it's, uh, it was an absolute joy speaking and I learned a lot and I'm sure anyone who tunes into my podcast will enjoy this conversation. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. I had a blast. Hello everyone, welcome to the second segment of this episode of Tennis with an Accent. I'm Saqib Ali, joined by Matt Semek, and uh, we are in the middle of the Asian Swing. Uh, and Matt, uh, Andy Murray uh, has won a couple of matches now this week, if I'm not mistaken, or maybe his first match, but he did win some matches last week 
also in the opening tournament in, in the Asian Swing, where he lost to Alex Di Menor. And uh, today he recorded a very quality win over Matteo Berrettini, someone who's been the talk of the tennis town uh, for a good part of this year. So your thoughts on that match and the Murray comeback? Well, you know, the Murray, the Murray singles comeback was very, and necessarily, I might add, tentative. You know, it was something where Murray had to be cautious, couldn't really overextend himself. This was a long-term process. He needed to give himself and his body time to readjust uh, to all the rhythms of practicing and training and then playing. Uh, so, you know, he, he wisely had nothing to do with, with the U.S. Open. You know, that, that was a good move. He did not need to get roped into potentially a, a long four-set match when his body uh, wasn't yet ready for it. So this, you know, since he uh, began in earnest his singles comeback, this is by far, you know, the most impressive result and performance. Uh, the fact that he beat Berrettini, you know, who, who we need to remind ourselves, he was a U.S. Open semifinalist, uh, and he played a really close first set against Nadal, easily could have won that set, uh, to, to, for Murray to beat Berrettini and also to beat him in what was an extremely tight and close match, you know, coming through uh, some very tense scoreboard situations. I mean, wow, what more could you want? And the fact that he won both of, both of the, the sets in the match, it meant that he didn't have to play a third. You know, so he, he saved that extra bit of strain on his body. So really, he checked so many boxes in one match. And obviously, you know, as commentators, we are taught to not overreact to any one match. And so I, I, I do think it's worth saying that, you know, this win doesn't mean that, oh, he's a frontline contender for the Australian Open in 2020. No, we, we can't we can't really go too far from it. But I think what we can say is that it shows that Murray still has the knack. You know, he didn't forget about it after all that time away. Uh, and so I think I think what it does point to, not going to guarantee it, but I think it certainly makes it realistic that by next late spring, you know, he could be a genuine factor in the larger workings of men's tennis. I don't think that an Australian Open renaissance is a realistic expectation just yet, but I do think that it, it certainly shows that this ship is headed in the right direction, and Murray gained some concrete evidence that he knows he can work back to a relatively high level. Now, obviously, we're all going to wonder exactly what Murray's ceiling is going to be. You know, that is, that is open-ended, but he, he certainly has gained some tangible proof that, hey, I, I can be in the mix. And I think for now, that's more than enough, and it's certainly a great triumph for him. No, it is indeed. And uh, let's see how far he goes in this tournament. And uh, uh, Beijing draw, I mean, we usually don't talk about uh, the upcoming matches, but there are a lot of... Uh, uh, the draw is heavy compared to the one in Tokyo, where the world's best player is playing. Uh, and, you know, who himself should be a talking point. He came back and recorded a straight set win over Alexi Paprin of Australia. So I don't know if you got a, any chance of watching any highlights of Novak Djokovic's return uh, to tour, Matt. I saw a little bit of that match, and I saw I, I watched late in the first set. I mean, it was four-all. Paprin had, I think, 30-15. Uh, and then Djokovic 
you know, as he is wont to do, he won the most important points late in a set. So that's still there. And uh, he was then able to move relatively smoothly through the second set. So typical steely, uh, you know, focused veteran performance, you know, started slowly as I think everyone expected in the first eight games, but then he turned it on when he had to. So he pretty much got what he was looking for. I would think with that first match. And so it's a, it's a good foundation to put in place uh, for what's ahead. Now, obviously, you know, this is a once a week podcast, so we're not really able to comment on several different matches uh, over the course of a week. You know, that's still to be determined what happens in Tokyo over the next several days. But as, as far as first matches go, um, Djokovic had to be relatively pleased. Yeah. And the next week, I think the tour moves to Shanghai where all the big names will uh, get together. And, uh, uh, I think the Asian swing hits its peak before it resets to the fall in Europe. So, yeah, there's plenty to talk about, uh, but we'll wait for the next opportunity uh, when, uh, you know, some sort of a review of Shanghai rolls around in the podcast. So let's f- focus the uh, conversation on the women's side. Uh, Sabalenka uh, is back in the winner's circle. So what I know you wrote about it, but what is... Uh, your take for the podcast audience. Uh, you know, I know there was back and forth discussion that she's too young to be resetting her career expectations, but uh, uh, she's still been a, quite a compelling watch in the last 12 months. Uh, yeah, yes, and compelling, not necessarily for the best of reasons, but compelling nonetheless. You know, how does a young athlete who gets punched in the teeth, you know, respond to getting dragged around by the WTA Tour for several months? You know, how, how would she... Would she be able to get off the canvas? She answered that question powerfully in the affirmative uh, in Wuhan. Uh, So, you know, in terms of does this mean that she has restored everything? Does this mean that she's on the way back? Well, you know, so I wouldn't place any stock whatsoever in the fact that she lost her first match in uh, Beijing to Daria Kasatkina. You know, she she came off a full week in Wuhan. So, you know, didn't have as much. Uh, in the tank as Kasakina did, so you know that's that's not a loss I would associate any real meaning to. Uh, the fact that she did win a title and, and a Premier Five title, you know, a relatively significant tournament, not the biggest one, but also not an international level. It's a lot bigger than that. The fact that she was able to defend that Wuhan title, you know, that is part of the developing muscle memory of an athlete. You know, to to be able to prove to yourself hey, I can still do this at a high level, just to have that experience. And, and you know, this wasn't, uh, this wasn't Rome. This wasn't Indian Wells. It wasn't one of the, the most prestigious tournaments on offer, but still a relatively important one against a very good field, and, and she was able to come through it. So that is a reminder that after all these months of struggle, you know, she can still play at a, at a high level, and I think that she will carry – what she did in Wuhan, she will carry that into the start of 2020 so that she can she can even more fully reset uh, than she did in Wuhan. I mean, this was certainly an act of resetting the dial for Sabalenka, but th- th- I think the significance is not so much uh, for anything in the next few months, but it's really for that Australian Open, which will be the place where she can truly reannounce herself uh, on a global scale. I mean, it just, it did, 2019 did not work out for her at any of the four majors. 
So all eyes are going to be on her at the 2020 Australian Open in a way that was very different from the 2019 Australian Open when a lot of the pre-tournament chatter surrounded her and Naomi Osaka after their compelling battle at the 2018 U.S. Open in the fourth round. Sabalenka, if, for people who forgot, was the only player to take a set off Osaka at that 2018 U.S. Open. So Sabalenka naturally legitimately entered the 2019 Australian Open with a lot of buzz. Now she's going to enter the 2020 Australian Open also with a lot of publicity and attention, uh, not for the absolute best of reasons, but also not the absolute worst of reasons either. There's going to be some focus on her because of the struggle she had in 2019, but uh, she risked being seen as an, irre an irrelevant player uh, for the 2020 Australian Open, but now this Wuhan title puts her back into the conversation. So there's a mixture of factors, some good, some not. Uh, but but Sabalenka has certainly um, re-entered uh, the big stage of women's tennis, and that's a great thing for the sport because we can see the natural talent that, that's there. And uh, if she can maximize it, you know that, that gives women's tennis a better chance of doing what it needs to do. And that is, for anyone who's been following my writing or my commentary this year, what women's tennis needs to do is to find a magnetic rivalry, a rivalry that gains traction. And Sabalenka's, if Sabalenka is playing great tennis, that gives the sport a better chance that uh, a matchup between her, uh, between she and Osaka, she and Bianca Andreescu, she and Sofia Kennan, any of the other uh, younger players coming up, if Sabalenka is in the mix, it just it simply gives women's tennis a greater chance of providing a new rivalry which can ignite and then carry the sport through the 2020s. Nothing well said. And Matt, I would like to conclude this episode on the note uh, on the men's side again, going back to Beijing. I'm keenly uh, following how this week turns out to be dumb for Dominic Team. I think he's someone who made his career move on the hard courts this year by winning the Indian Wells title, but then has come down with flu-like symptoms since Montreal. But I think playing Labor Cup, he got like two, I think, uh, by Labor Cup standards, he got two good matches against uh, Taylor Fritz and Dennis Shapovalov, and now he's already won a match here. So I would just, uh, I just want to, you know, for our listeners, uh, bring Dominic Team back in the conversation and see how he can end the year if he's f is feeling it physically again. Uh, he's a lock for the World Tour Finals, but I want to see how he goes about the fall and can he be a factor at the indoor tournament? Of course, you know, his huge backswings and the court positioning has always been in question, but, you know, he's been able to win with the same stance and same game and Indian Wells. So let's see how uh, the remainder of 2019 unfolds from at least uh, that's a very keen watch for me for the last six, seven weeks of the season. Absolutely. So uh, anything uh, before we wrap the show for... The audience, I know this was a podcast week and you tweeted uh, with our audience to just, you know, drop in some reviews and share uh, selectively with their tennis friends. And I think we are ever grateful uh, to whatever gives this podcast more traction and uh, feedback is something we encourage in any form, either write to us on the Twitter uh, uh, Twitter forum when we release a podcast. If you want to criticize us, if you want to add value or share any comments, I think Matt can say it better, but I think that's what I look for when we record these episodes and we try to bring in quality guests for you uh, 
uh, whenever we can. It's not easy to get in touch with the guests we had uh, in segment one. But uh, yeah, Matt, uh, if you want to do a concluding thought and then we can be back for another week to record an episode. Yeah, I would just say two things. One, on our website at tennisaccent.com, you know, if uh, the U.S. Open is now, you know, a few weeks in the in the rear view, uh, if you didn't get a chance during that very busy time of the of the tennis season, you know, now this is a slower time of year. Um, if you didn't get a chance, the, go through our website and look at our tennis accent premium stories. Uh, the, some of the longer reads, I and mean, we had articles on the tennis rule book. And we had articles in Spanish. If you are a Spanish-speaking, Spanish-reading uh, uh, fan of tennis with an accent, we had some stories by Carlos Navarro on mental health in tennis. Uh, we had a story by Ed Salmon, a former podcast guest, on eco- the, the ecology of the WTA Tour. Uh, we had Mert Ertunga, our, our, one of our uh, in-house contributors, writing about uh, the 1936 U.S. Nationals. You know, it wasn't called the U.S. Open back then because it was, uh, you know, the, the amateur era. He had, Mert wrote about the 1936 U.S. Open, or excuse me, U.S. Nationals final between uh, Fred Perry and Don Budge. Uh, so a lot of other interesting articles that you can find on our website. Uh, and then as for our podcast, yeah, I, I echo what Sakib said about feedback in particular, you know, during late November and all through December, you know, that is, you know, the dead time of, of the of the tennis year, you know, right after PK Cup ends and before the New Zealand-Australia swing begins. Um, you know, if you have uh, podcasts off the beaten path, certain topics that you'd like us to explore in the month of December, you know, obviously through November, we're, there's still live tennis to talk about. But if there are certain December topics, like our Christmas episode, our New Year's episode, if there are topics you'd like us uh, to discuss, please let us know so that we can uh, find guests who can who can address those subjects. So that's what I have to add, Sakib. All right, well said, as always. So on that note, it's Sakib and Matt signing off. We'll be back with another episode in a week's time. Bye for now. <laughs>